Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. Rose is back today, and I'm excited because we had a good conversation last time. So Rose lives in the Dominican Republic. She was instrumental in starting and doing, she had her hand in all the things of helping set up uh, a relief, can I, should I say relief or a rescue from human trafficking? What would, what would be appropriate there? Um, it was more of a rescue organization. We did all three facets, rescue, reintegration, and restoration. So you did everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are a lot of big words right there. But Rose was telling us how everything got set up and she was giving us some statistics and she was telling us what as parents and grandparents and just people in general we can look out for. But I wanted Rose to come back because I wanted Rose to share some of her success stories with us, tell us some of the challenges that they've had, uh, the stuff right now. She's not as hands-on in it right now. She had a child, so she had to step back, but she's still in the Dominican, so I'm sure she still knows what's going on. So Rose, will you please start by telling us some of the challenges uh, you had in this role that you had? Oh yeah, man. That's such a good question. I remember uh, last time I said something about how every day seemed like a week, every week seemed like a month and every month seemed like a year. <laughs> and I think that itself kind of can express just how challenging it could be because every day it was something. So like, if you think about squishing a whole week into a day, it's what it felt like. It could be, you could come into the office at like eight o'clock in the morning and everything was fine and peaceful. The girls were ready to go to class. They were eating breakfast and and ready and dressed. Or you could be called in at seven o'clock in the morning and everything was a disaster and the house parents were like dealing with one girl and keeping the other girls in another part of the house. And like, it just started your day. (laughs) So there, (laughs) there were, there was a lot, there's a lot that went on, but, um, I think when I think back, one of the bigger challenges that we had during my time there is working specifically in the house hands-on was at one point we had girls from two opposing gangs and they came from completely different like ways of coming to the house. One actually came through like the public foster care system or the Dominican version of the foster care system. They don't, it's different than how it is in the US. But one of them came to us that way, basically didn't really have any family or if she did, didn't want her. And then another one came through a raid. So like completely, completely different ways of coming into our care, but they ended up being from the same area. And they had at one point in time been members of opposing gangs. So I remember one time, <laughs> I think my, my husband remembers this pretty well too, because I would come home from work. Work was technically supposed to be done at five, but you know, like it's, you're working with people. So right. you can't necessarily put in, put hours on that. Yeah. So I think I got home probably around eight o'clock, which was kind of 
sometimes normal for me, was still doing some paperwork, eating dinner. And then I was on the phone with my boyfriend at the time and just kind of decompressing and going through what had what the day had been like and um, how we had these two girls here. And it was kind of stressful and trying to figure out when um, I mean, we had them in different rooms, like we had taken proper precautions, but kind of trying to figure out, you know, how, how we could teach them that what they had left behind doesn't apply to here. And then I get a call at like, I think it was probably 1030 at this time, 1030 at night. And I was talking with my boyfriend. I'm like, oh, I got a call from the house parents. I was on call. I'm like, I need to, I need to pick this up. So I pick it up and they're like, you need to come right now. We might even need the police. Like (gasps) the girls have gotten into like this physical fight. One of them's outside when the house mom is outside the house with her and the other one's inside. Like you need to come right now. (laughs) So I have, I like, I tell my boyfriend, like, I have to go. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't have time. And I like hang up the phone. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It was, yeah, yeah. This is, this is kind of a crazy story. So I get there and one of like these girls had gotten into like a physical fight. So the house parents were able to get them apart before too much damage was done. I mean, we had training in place, but you know, stuff happens. So they like, according to protocol, they took one girl outside the more like, the one who was being the least cooperative, they took her outside, um, in, inside the compound still, but outside the house. And they had to lock the door so that she wouldn't come back inside the house. So the one, the house mom inside had to lock the door so that the girl wouldn't come back inside the house. The We had a, a property garden. So he was outside and our one house parent was outside with this girl. And she was just like, I get there and she's like pacing back and forth. And she's just like, I mean, like breathing really hard and angry and like doesn't want anybody to be close to her. The house moms are like, is my approach was like, I, I go up and I talk to the girls. I put myself at their eye levels whenever I would be calming them down or talking to them. And our house mom said, try this, but they're like, Rose, don't like, don't go near her. She's just like, she's violent right now. But I was like, no, it's okay. This particular girl and I had kind of a rapper, like she would come and talk to me about things that she wouldn't necessarily open up to other people about. So I'm like, I, I trust her that she's not going to, and I, I'm saying this all the time, I trust that she's not going to hurt me. And so like, I approach her, I talk to her, I'm like talking to her, I'm like, look, you need to like, you need to breathe through this, I need to calm down. And then she was able to like lay my hand on her arm because that's one of the techniques is if you, once you establish physical connection, if they have your trust, then it, the physical touch just helps them to really calm down. So I just lay my hand on her arm, Say, look, you need to just calm down. I'll go inside and see what this is about. And then once you, I want you to sit down. And once you're ready, I'll come back out and I'll talk to you and hear your side of the story. So I go inside and I mean, I, I won't go into details of the story, but it was one of those things where there was a lot of elements behind it. And both of these girls in the Dominican Republic, the spiritual element is very real. Haiti is our neighboring country on the same island, and they're very well known for their voodooism, like witchcraft, and some of that comes over into the Dominican Republic. So in the gangs, on the Dominican Republic, in the Dominican Republic country, on the island, some of the most powerful gangs that you find in the capital city, which is about three hours from where from, not necessarily where the girls are from, but some of the most powerful gangs in Latin America have connections to here. And almost all of them, of like we had someone come into the home and do training with our house moms and with our staff on gang like activity and habits and how to recognize different signs and stuff for if we get a girl and we don't know that she's from a gang, how do we recognize that? How do we identify which gang they're with? What some of the gangs, like what is their 
model and and their like political structure inside their gang so that we know how to to better take care of the girls and anyway the most powerful ones all have voodooism somehow involved in their gang activity so both of these girls did not only have violent backgrounds and traumatic backgrounds and extreme abuse and family neglect but they also had a spiritual element involved having been exposed to like witchcraft and stuff so there was like, I literally spent, and we had an, a couple more staff members come. We ended up not having to call the police that night. There were twice, uh, two other times that we had to actually call the police just to, how do I say that? Just to come in and make sure that the girls know anytime they threaten the life of someone else, whether our staff or another girl in our home, we will take action to protect someone else's life. Anyway, but in this instance, we ended up not having to call the police. We did call in our pastor um, who came in and just like helped walk through the girls with some spiritual counseling. And I ended up not being able to, I, not leaving until I think it was two o'clock in the morning. And by the time I left, all the girls were in bed and they were asleep. Nobody had to be separated out. I mean, in the house physically, yeah, they were separated out, but nobody had to be taken out of the home that night. And I, I left at like two o'clock. My roommate had come at that point too. And, um, <laughs> we're like on the road away from the compound, going back to our apartment. And there's this car coming towards us. And we see like we see the lights of this car ahead. This road has some potholes and stuff because where our safe home was, was a little bit out, like away from town. So that like, it's actually a safe location. And so there were some potholes and stuff. I mean, down here, that's pretty normal for roads that aren't as well-maintained because of not having as much traffic on them. And so we see the lights going back and forth from one side of the road to the other. And we thought it was just a car trying to get away from the potholes and stuff. But I noticed as I was driving, we were on a motorbike. My roommate was behind me. I was in the front. Noticed that whatever side of the road I would go on to try, like to also avoid the potholes I was going over, this, like the car kept on coming to my side of the road, almost like he was following my lights. We were going decently slow enough, but we come up to it to the point where I see this car is going to hit me. Like it's not staying on the other side of the road. It's following my light. And <laughs> I was able to avoid it so that we only brushed the side. My roommate ended up getting burned from the, our muffler, from the motorite muffler on her leg. Like we chipped it to the side, but we were able to hop off. No, no other scratches, but the, my foot pedal from my, where my, from my motorbike, I lifted my foot it was close enough to the car that it ripped the front bumper off halfway. So the car was actually more damaged than my bike. My bike started up and we were able to ride home that night. I had to get it like tuned up the next day. But we found out it was a drunk driver. Right at two o'clock in the morning on the same road that we were coming back after having just gone through like two to three hours of like intense like trauma counseling with girls who got into a fight. So yeah, <laughs> that was a very interesting night. I get back home and I call my my boyfriend because he or he messaged me and told me to message him when I get back home. I messaged him. It was like close to three o'clock in the morning at this time. And he was still awake because he's like, what happened? <laughs> like you just <laughs> hung up and left. Like what happened? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm okay, but I, I got brushed by a drunk driver. <laughs> He's thinking you're making some of this up because how can that even all happen in one night? Right, right. Such a crazy story. So, I mean, and that's just one of the stories. Like we, we had, we had a girl like punch through a glass window and so like cut her arm. So we had to like get her stitched up or, uh, man, there was, there's so much because, and these are the things. I mean, like I just told you something that happened in two to three hours. Imagine going through an entire day of the ups and downs 
of that kind of trauma and working with that. And that's why I say a day was like a week, week was like a month, a month was like a year. Like, cause it wasn't always that extreme, but there were a lot of things that, that we dealt with. <laughs> was it, is it really normal to be dealing with girls who were in gangs or that you, you rescued from gangs? Was that a normal thing? I think with, in about a year and a half time, about 22 girls, we had three former gang members. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, it's it's not like it's the run of the mill, but it's not necessarily uncommon. So are they, want when they are with you, are they wanting to get away from the gang or are they thinking, how can they be, how can they get back in with the gang? I'm not from really the three, in yeah. gangs, Rose, so you have to help. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so, it was, that's why it was so good for us to actually have people from, you know, how like the FBI in the United States has different task force, like they have the terrorism task force. They have like, I mean, there's the narcotics division of, of not necessarily FBI, but like of the branch of government, all that stuff. So the DR has similar stuff and they have a specific gang division. So they, they came in and they were talking our staff through. So it was one of like the most fascinating workshops we had with our staff because it helped us just to understand a lot more the culture of the gangs. And, but yeah, anyway, so of the three girls, two of them had not been actively involved for several years, one of them specifically because she had been in public like group homes for about three years before she came to us. But she ended up being the one that was there when an opposing gang member was there who was actively in a, involved in a gang by the time we got there. And so, I mean, just imagine that an active gang member and one who'd formerly been involved but had been not actively involved in gang for three years, it was still the bond, the tie was still strong enough that like, they knew exactly which gang that they had belonged to and um, like faced off at one point. I mean, it, thankfully, thankfully it didn't happen again after that. We, um, we had to like, at that point we had to have conversations, but do we remove one of the girls? Like, do we, we have to place her in a different, in a different place or um, the one girl specifically, we had been looking at some long-term options of, since she was a little bit older of like some long-term, you know, Hey, some work opportunities and stuff. So did that mean that we, you know, place her or try to get her to live independently more immediately or look for family who might be willing to take her, you know, we had to have those conversations and stuff, um, when, when that happened, but. Who would you, I mean, obviously I'm not saying like who, like you're going to say Sally Jones, but like who would have been. Mm-hmm best um like you were really concerned about this person when they came in and by the time they left they were like your best case scenario like did that happen a lot or not so much it happened with a couple of girls actually one of them was the one who was with us for the longest term because she had been in two group homes before she's the one that i talked about last time where she had you know she had a kid at at 13 years old and her mom was the one who was pimping her out and stuff. She, when she came into, I mean, imagine all of that. She comes into our care with a two-year-old. Her mom's rights had been completely revoked at that point, but it was still the only family she knew. And, and she did have a stepdad and three younger sisters. And so she came into our home and she was completely withdrawn, like completely, completely withdrawn, angry. Like I would look in her eyes and see anger brewing underneath her eyes. Like just the world was her enemy and she had her son. She, she loved her son, but obviously like she only knew how to mother so far, like to a certain point, she didn't have a good example as a mother. But I remember, I think it took a week before I saw her smile for the first time. And she, 
she was actually, she's kind of special to me because I think, I mean, she, I think she's special to all of her staff who was there when she was there just because of the length of time that she spent with us. But I remember my, she came in a couple of weeks before my birthday or a week or so before my birthday. Let me think. I might have this timing wrong, but anyway, I remember, like, I remember last time I was talking about where it took about 10 to 12 days for girls to really adjust to the house. And within those 10 to 12 days, the majority of them had some kind of crisis point or another, whether it was physical, emotional, you know, what, like a crisis, however they took it out. Some of them took it out physically. And I remember spending the night of my birthday at the house because she particularly had gone on such a rage. She was like throwing furniture around the room and the house moms there were, we always had two of them, but they had other girls to take care of. So they just asked if I could spend the night there that night just to be another like person in the house to make sure everything was okay. And she had, I think one more violent outburst within the next like month or two. And then after that, she was in our care for, I remember at about three months, um, we had to work through so many trust, like trust problems with her because I mean, Every other person in her life who should have been someone who was taking care of her or looking out for her, I mean, completely, completely abused her. And she would start talking to us and opening up about how worried she was about her younger sisters. Um, they were, the oldest of the three was coming to a, to the age of the time, close to the age, about a year or so out of the age when her mom started pimping her out. So she was worried the same thing would happen to your younger sister. We had to talk with her where, with like, well, do you think that your stepdad, you know, is he a good dad? Because at that point he wasn't with his, with his wife and he'll take care of your younger sisters. Like it, like we had to work through all of these things with her and I, it's just so much. And there was also more spiritual elements behind her. Um, like what I was talking about with the witchcraft and voodooism and stuff that we had to work through. So on every level, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, physically, she had gone through so much. I remember three months in when she com- like she realized how we actually did love her for exactly who she was and how she was. And I remember watching the change and looking at her, like as her life changed, as she grasped a hold of these truths mentally and spiritually, as she grasped a hold of the truth that there was a God who loved her, even with the difficulties that she'd gone through with her life, that she was never alone and she never had to be alone again with this, not armed with this knowledge and the truth of, of the Bible and the love that Jesus had shown for her. She became like literally a new person. And uh, I got goosebumps like, like all over my body, new. tears in my eyes. Yes. Like it just amazing, amazing change. And I still sometimes talk with her. She's doing good. Like she's actually, she has a, a partner and she's pregnant with another baby. I think it's a, a girl and she's so excited about it. She, I saw her be, like become a mom to her son as she was able to heal personally her son who like she would take care of him physically but wouldn't necessarily emotionally spend time with him 6 months after coming to our care she came to to visit me one time like just at my house personally and she was laying on the bed reading a book to her son i had never seen her do that before hmm. and just so many like such a huge change i like, completely like like i i said when she first came in i saw like anger and her eyes, like her entire attitude was mistrust. And like, if you would see her now, 
she's one of the like smiliest, happiest people you'll ever see. She's she was so, with like just years. Um, she was actually ended up being with us for about two years, a year and a half officially, and about two years. And she was able to. I mean, she wasn't quite aged out, but she was old enough to be able to get a job and live on her own with her son. So her yeah, I mean, real? I don't think so. That I remember, if I remember correctly, I don't think she did because that wasn't something we pursued. She was mandated into our custody from the governing authority. So they were supposed to pursue it. And it wasn't something that our social workers going to take on at the time. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot in that case that should have been resolved, but it wasn't necessarily a case. There was another organization who was helping with that case. And I don't actually recall how it was ever resolved. But I do know that she was able to see her sisters again. We were able to get in contact with her stepdad and they actually brought all three of her sisters by for a visit at one point in time. And she's, she's reconnected with them again. So there's, I mean, there's so much. We had some of these girls who like, in one minute, they were like the happiest person. And five minutes later, like it was like a thunderstorm was coming through. And she was, there's also girls who are master manipulators. I mean, to survive, you learn how to manipulate. She was very masterful at manipulating and <laughs> it was interesting because like I would just call her out on it and she couldn't get away with stuff with I mean and not just me but with like all of the, all of our, our staff were pretty well trained in this of like like look through behind always question this is not necessarily a parenting technique but when, <laughs> when you're working with girls in this kind of environment question every single thing they're telling you, you know, in your mind, like question, question every single thing they're telling you and, and, and look for, look for reasonings behind it. Why would they be saying this and all that? Anyway, so I would just call her out on some of her stories and we would have these really interesting conversations. She would, for five days straight, she'd like, I hate this place. I don't want to be here. I hate this place. I don't want to be here. <laughs> and she was with us for only three weeks. And the last week that she was with us, there was just this complete change. And I, this is where I credit a lot. This is why the spiritual element of our ministry was so important because we would have, we would have biblical, like spiritual counseling as well as psychological trauma counseling. And we always had a spiritual element with, with our counseling of like, who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? Why are you loved enough for someone to give their life for you? And the last week that she was with us, she was very quiet. Like she had been hearing, like she'd been hearing the gospel. She'd been hearing what we were talking about in the Bible. And she was just very quiet. And this was very rare for her because like I said, she would, her change from five, like five minutes, one to another, she got into, she tried to get into so much trouble and mischief. It was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but like she, when she left, she was only with us for three weeks because she was mandated back into the care of a family member. And she gave me a hug and she told me like, she would be contacting me once she had her phone back. And she said, Rose, I know that you guys truly love me. Oh. And that was like the last thing she said. And then she, she did, like she wrote me about a week after coming home. She told me she was going to church. She told me that she was reading her Bible and she was remembering all the things that she learned in our morning Bible studies. And she said, I think what you told me is true. I think Jesus actually does love me and I want to learn more about him. And like, she ended up disconnecting her number and I have not been able to hear from her again. Our social workers did some, but by the time that 
she lived quite a few hours away and we've been back to the family member that she had been mandated into their custody and they said that she had left and gone to another family member who was in a different town it was just kind of this thing of we were not able to contact her again and she was older she was already like 17 and older so she would be on her own very soon anyway and I I always like this is one of the girls that just always I wonder where she's at and how she's doing like there's some of the girls where I know I know exactly where they're at what they're doing how they're doing but she is one of those I'm like I don't I don't know where she is but I really really hope that she held on to that truth because it was like talking to a completely new person and in a very short period of time which is which was pretty incredible wow because even now do you talk to some of the girls that you worked with yeah Yeah, yeah. Uh, All the ones that I worked with have been either on their own or back with family or different points in time in their life, completely different than when they were with us. And there's quite a few that I'm still in contact with via like social media and, and whatnot. And yeah, I always love, I mean, some of them are not making choices that I am proud of and things I'm like, we taught you better, like, you know, better than that. Really? But yeah, but like, like I said last time, you can only help someone to the point that they want to be helped. And that doesn't mean that I don't want to hear from them and I want to know how they're doing. Right. Yeah. So with the house moms, do they live there? Or do they live somewhere else and just rotate there? How does that work out? Yeah, so we always had at least three house moms and we, we shifted our model a little bit here and there. We like tweaking it and figuring out what helped because at first we had the house moms do the cleaning and cooking too with like had the girls help with chores and stuff. But we eventually found out with our girls specifically, this is where it worked differently than Asia, say for instance, with the culture here and just the dynamics. We, our girls needed the house moms' attentions completely. So we had someone come in as like a cook and to help clean just like as a day job. And then the house moms would have on a rotating schedule, three or four of them. So there was always two in the house and they would work the equivalent of like a 40 hour work week and sleep, live there with the girls and then go home the equivalent of three days out of 12 day rotation. So some of them, like we would, we would vary it. So some of them would work five days on four days off, depending on on how the schedule was. Some of them would work 10 days on and five days off or or like it would, it would vary or something similar to that. So, but yeah, they would live there with the girls. And I assume you have to have someone awake at all times. Uh, Not necessarily. When we had new girls, yes. With new girls, we would have someone either awake at all times or have an alarm to go do a routine check through the house every hour or so. That was part of our new, like transitioning new girls into the home. But we we wouldn't necessarily say that we would have to be awake. We would just have periodic checks like every so often, not necessarily at the same time every night, but periodically wake up and check the house. and, And depending on depending on their schedules, they would switch off and with responsibilities of doing that. So it seemed to work out very well. Did you ever have anyone try to find any of the girls that you rescued? Like try to find the house or try to contact them or try to break them out of there? Are you pretty in a secretive location? We had one person and we, we tried, we tried to not disclose our location, but again, I mean, we were with some of the government protocols and stuff, which meant that at one point in time, some of the girls would know exactly where the house was and could bring people back or this or that. But we didn't necessarily have any problems with that. We did have at one point, the family of one of the girls showed up and we didn't know how they found out where the house was. And we found out it was 
someone in the government department had told them where it was. <laughs> they didn't cause us any problems, but they did come. Like they showed up and we had to like, we had to call the local like authority, not necessarily the police, but like the authority over, over like custody and stuff to come and like tell them, hey, this can't happen again. And you need to wait until until we have like official communication with you and then we'll bring her, we'll bring her back to where you are. So that happened once, but we didn't necessarily thankfully run into problems of like anybody trying to break someone out. We did have one incident of a runaway <laughs> that we did have. Yeah. Amazingly, amazingly, like with, I mean, with, we had so many like protocols and stuff in place. Like we, to do our best to have it feel like a home and not a jail. I mean, you don't want them to feel like they're in prison. We had a great outdoor space and stuff, but we did have one runaway. And that happened because of some security stuff. And it happened, like, I mean, literally within a two-minute window of a house, mom went from one room to the next to grab something and came back. And uh, one door wasn't shut where it should have been. And I mean, it, it's very hard when you run into that where you want the girls to feel like they're in a home, but you don't want them to feel like they're caged. And we did everything possible to prevent that. But, you know, so it, it happens. Um, thankfully, like, thankfully, we were able to find her very quickly because of that short window of time. But yeah, that, that did happen once. So that was kind of interesting. So when you when you get her back, when you rescue her technically a second time, why did she leave? Was she just scared to be there? You're the safe place, right? Well, that see, that's what you would think uh, from from a healthy thinking. Yes, we're the safe place. We're here where you're getting great food, like amazing, like some educational opportunities and friends around you and people who genuinely care about you. But if you're in a place that it was not my decision to come here because again, they were minors. So they were mandated into our care. So it was not their decision to be there. And you compare that to, and and there's like rules and regulations to follow. And we were very strict because again, when dealing with trauma and trying to integrate someone from being completely on their own and the survivor instinct, it's actually very crucial to, to have a very strict environment for them at least for the first couple weeks so that they are able to transition transition better so it would be like no cell phones nothing i mean that was part of our security protocol too to like these this is your schedule this is a very rigorous schedule of like attending classes and uh, like physical activity no work stuff but like physical activity like pe stuff and 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 some self-defense training and then we would also have like we would have outing days uh once a week but one of the things that if the girls didn't follow our list of rules and regulations of these these are the rules of the house then that would that would get revoked they wouldn't get to go out on their outing days so that was some of those like the consequences so like we would do our best to teach them this is your choice and this is a consequence of this choice. So like have natural consequences for a choice that they made. So like, let's say for instance, they didn't do their, their chore of clearing the table after eating before going up to school. So that means like they would get extra, extra like things on their schedule having to do that next time. Or if they didn't get up in time, they were late to classes, then they had to apologize to people for, for being late to class and had to stay extra and do the work longer because that's a natural consequence of being late is then you have to still put in the time. It doesn't mean you just get to skip class. So just like we'd have, and so one of those things was, and we had different tiers of like expectations and, and regulations. If there was like certain number of like in the certain tier, this is, this was the consequence. Another tier, if it was bad enough, such as completely skipping classes all week, then you don't get to go on the outing because 
you weren't being responsible in the house. So we can't trust you to be responsible out of the house. So just different stuff like that. But um, anyway, in trying to do so, it's still walking that line of this is still a home of this is not a prison. (laughs) So some of the girls came from completely being able to do what they want. Like back to your question of when they want to be there, why would they want to run away? Imagine someone being able to do completely what they want. Like they have their own phone. They can live wherever they want. I mean, sometimes that means on the street corner, if they get a client, it means sometimes a great hotel room, you know, like just completely on their own schedule doing what they want for, which was the case for some of our girls. Cause like last time I explained that they came from different situations. So some of the girls would pimping themselves out, come that into a very, very structured, strict environment we can see was for their own good. And we would see how much good it was doing them. But if you sit there in a moment and think, look, if I would be out of this place on my own, I could make my own decisions and it wouldn't matter. The mental space that they would be in because of where trauma puts you, it can, it actually mentally, it can stunt your mental brain growth so that maturity wise, a 15 year old would be more like a 10 year old maturity wise. So getting them to see the long term was very hard. So in a moment's decision, it's like, oh, I could be out there by myself. I'm taking it. And then not realizing until that night when you have no roof over your head and no food in your stomach that, oh, maybe where I was wasn't that bad after all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, I mean, yeah, it, it was difficult because I, I mean, talking like to the maturity level of you would, if you have a 15 year old, you expect them to act like a 15 year old, but in actuality, their mature age is more like I gave the example of a 10 year old, then you need to more treat them like a 10 year old with the expectation that, but we want more for you. So we are going to push you more because we know you can get to a place of being better and making better choices for yourself. So when we hear, because you said that some of the gals, this was their choice and they did it on themselves. They didn't have a pimp. When we hear the statistics of how many people are human trafficked a year, does that include the people who choose to do so? So it depends, I think, on the country, from what I know. It depends on the country because in the Dominican Republic, for instance, if they make the choice to do so themselves, if they're an adult, it's not a trafficking case because it's still legal here. But if they're a minor, it would be considered a trafficking case or at the least a sexual exploitation of a minor case, which we would be, we worked with trafficking and sexual exploitation. So it would be in the statistics of sexual abuse and exploitation, which can be lumped under under a certain type of trafficking. Okay. And I think we all have our own idea of what trafficking is, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. for all these people. All these people were violated, obviously. Yeah. Not necessarily were they like beaten or tortured. Correct. Um, not not necessarily, and again, it would depend on their on their circumstance and their situation. But like, let's say for instance, one of our girls who was an orphan on the street, she had a sister she could have lived with, but she didn't want to. So by her own choice, she was on the street. She came in and out of her care about three times because she would last so long, and then uh, we would try to like help her with her sister or get back. Again, we were working with the government departments on that. But then a month or two later, she would be back on the streets by herself. And then she knew where her house was, so she would knock on her door and ask if she could come back in. And we, at one point, we said, yeah, we can take you back in. But with the expectations of this is still, these are still the regulations, expectations that we have for you. She would last her so long and then be like, I don't want to be here anymore. 
And and again, like I, I said, we would have these conversations of sometimes would it be better to remove a girl from our home with her? It came to that point where, yes, it was better to we would put her back with her sister again, knowing that she would probably just leave again. But we can only help her to a certain point, knowing we would probably find her back on the streets again, which is heartbreaking. But she was a specific case of she would pimp herself out, but she would also get pimped out because down here there would be there's international people coming and they would want to have a party including girls for sex so anybody who is like just a low level it doesn't matter if they're not like this huge have a ring of girls that they're trafficking but like a low level pimp get a contact well hey there's a party can you get me a couple girls well here's someone i know i have a connection to this person so i'm gonna hey let's offer this girl up even though i'm not technically her pimp i can get her into the party and then i get a cut of that of that pay so she would get pimped out from other people by her own choice as well but it doesn't but she did get into some hairy situations i mean it doesn't mean that she was under the rule of some of somebody of someone all the time but she did get into some hairy situations to survive to to like to live and unfortunately by her own choice there i mean there is there's always one of those things where it's like could we have done more for her to a point i mean yes we could have but we did offer her more and she didn't want to take it either there's always the like choices of i don't know i don't know always if we did the best thing or not we did the best thing we knew at the time so yeah do you still keep in contact with her no, not necessarily. There, I, I would probably be able to know where to find her. I, I would know where her sister is, and her sister may or may not know where to find her. But no, no, we don't keep in contact with her because she doesn't necessarily keep a phone. Like she'll get a phone and then she'll change her number constantly. So the trust issues that the people you work with are not so good, are they? No, they're massive, <laughs> massive issues. Yes, that was. I, I mean, that's the biggest barrier is if. If I don't trust that you're doing the best thing for me, then I'm not going to trust anything you're telling me until you prove otherwise. Mm. Or I see you've proved otherwise, but I still don't trust you enough to know that if I stick this out long enough, it will be better for me. I'm going to go back to the best thing I know or to what I know, because even if it's not as good for me as being with you guys, at least I know what's expected or what will become. Mm-hmm. So you're working with minor females. Is there a group around you that works with minor males as well? So we were asked this actually in our program by like some of the government departments. If, would we take males or open up a male program if that would be the need? Because they would see some cases of males. But we didn't. At the time when I was with the organization, we never were able to. There was never enough cases to open up a program for males. However, we had enough contacts to know if they were placed with, let's say, a group home or a boy's home to be able to train a couple of our contacts in how to take care of that one specifically who had gone through trafficking. So we didn't do that particularly, and I've not actually been involved yet with an organization who does like just males, but I do have some contacts of boys' homes and they have enough training that if there is the rare occasion of a male that would need, especially a minor male who needs placement, we can recommend where to put him and these people have been trained and know how to take care of him. Well, again, I found this very interesting. It's so out of my wheelhouse to... (laughs) 
it, no one talks about these kinds of things because no one a wants yeah. to or even thinks that this happens. So I think that yeah. you're an amazingly strong person that this is, I mean, this was your job day in, day out. Yeah. I mean, there is definitely like, there was a couple of times I definitely wanted to throw in the towel, but at the end of the day, like every single one is worth it. Like it, it, every single person has, has incredible incalculable value and deserve every chance that we can give them. Do you want to go back into this at some point? Definitely. I I know like there's some days where I'm like, man, there's so much I could be doing right now, but I am, I mean, like I am doing what's best for my family and especially my son right now. And I know this is where I'm supposed to be not supposed to be as active, but I would, I would love to, like, I definitely am not finished with playing an active role similarly or the same of what I did before. So someone like me who is living where I live and not having the experience that you have experienced, I can't do a role that you do, but what is, what is something someone average can do? Um, yeah, that's, that's such a good question. And I think, I think the answer is multifaceted because it depends on what you can do. Do you have the time to volunteer at a local youth program? There's, there's day camps or weekend camps. There are day, like, places of day treatments. I know someone, not necessarily in North Dakota, but in Montana, who she's able to go in on the weekends and or she, she helps supervise outings. So there's volunteer efforts that, depending on where your location is, that you might be able to fill in part-time or go get some training done. I mean, if you want to go really deep, like go study and get a counseling degree, like that's super deep or a social working degree or become a foster family, you know, like if you're able to. So it depends on what, to what point are you able to help? Can you, can you become a foster family or even adopt? Because there's so much in the foster system that with displaced kids where in the United States, you see so many of them that if they have not had a great foster home, they end up in a gang or they end up being trafficked as they get out on their own and not having the life skills that they need. So there's that. There's also like crisis pregnancy centers or becoming short-term host um, places while people are transitioning. And there's always just the become an advocate. Find an organization that you that you believe in what they're doing in your local community or even over the United States, overseas, but become an advocate for the organization, support them financially, support them by, by displaying what they're doing and advocating for what they're doing, participate in yearly walks and runs to, to bring awareness. There's so much and there's every level of participation out there. It's just a matter of, of finding somewhere to plug into. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge because I I find it very fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, my, it's, I'm so glad to, it's my joy to be able to do that because the more people who hear about this and the more people who get involved, the the bigger of an impact that we'll have. Absolutely. Encourage people to live better, do better and be better in general, right? Definitely. Absolutely. To look around you and see where you can help right where you're at. Well, thank you so much, Rose. You have a wonderful day. My pleasure. You too. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.